Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. This is part two of my basketball dueling questions with Adam Gray. Thank you, sponsors, Tops, Panini, and Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Compsy.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading. Adam and I got going. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be able to contain it, even limiting to basketball to uh, only 15 minutes. This is the second half, and uh, I enjoyed it. I hope you do too. So here it is. Going along with this paying no more than a thousand bucks for a card. If somebody's collecting and has expensive taste and they're on a budget, and maybe it's more than a thousand bucks, would you be able to coach somebody that was interested in putting together a great basketball card collection that could not pay the sky's the limit? Would you be able to coach them on what grades to go for? Let's say it's graded. It's not raw, but graded cards. On this card, you probably ought to go for a seven. On this card, you ought to go for a nine. On this card, you should go for a 10. Would you be able to help somebody with knowing that the premium for a 10, in some cases, not worth it? Even the premium for a nine and an eight is a great looking card for some of those inserts. You'd be able to give that kind of specific advice to a serious collector. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because the conventional wisdom is buy the best you can afford. That assumes you're only going to buy one card. If you're putting together a collection, it's get the best collection you can afford. That might be three eights instead of one nine or a half of a 10. Sometimes when new collectors come into our hobby, they expect a certain multiple between a nine and a 10 and an eight and a nine. But my experience is that isn't really the case. We give generic rules around those things, but what really drives that is the question of rarity. If a card has been graded a thousand times and there's one 10, that's not going to have a typical multiplier. If there's hundred nines and there's only one 10, it's going to have a much higher multiplier. Than normal. At the same point, a lot of times the 10 will be the most common grade, especially amongst the newer type cards. In my experience, not looking at the ratios within the population reports basically puts you in a situation where you know there might be short-term things that seem strange for pricing, but in the long term, the population reports and the um, way that the the tens and the nines and the eights, the, the way that they compare really matters. If you look at that, I think you can find different times where the market is temporarily out of flux. Those are opportunities that any serious collector could coach a new collector on how to identify. Just to follow up on that, would you be making extensive use of card ladder or would you use card ladder as one data point? Or would you think it's reasonably determinative of those condition ratios? I think that what I would use mainly would be having an understanding of what the um, cards sell for and what the population reports are. And Card Ladder is a great tool for that. I know they have some predictive pricing. That's what I'm talking about. I can't speak to that, Jim. I don't really know whether that's a great tool or not. But what I do know is if you have the ability to take some of the data that they provide around population reports and recent sales, you'll have times where the cells that you're seeing just don't make sense. And you can use your own brain. And that's what I do to understand whether something's underpriced or overpriced. And there's times where I'm just left shaking my head saying, why is the market doing that? I think the market's wrong. And more often than not, if you're analytical on that front side and you see the prices doing what they're doing and you believe something's going to happen, more often than not, you end up being right about that. In the long run, short run, yeah. Exquisite. Remember, like it was yesterday, comes out at $500 a box. And these cards start coming out, LeBron James, RPA is number to 99, that sort of thing. 
And you guys have to go put a price on those things. In the month following, you've got to go put a price out there. Now, obviously, there's up arrows and stuff that follows after that. But in these times where really rare cards came out, sometimes you would say too volatile to list, not enough sales data, and you'd have a little blurb in the magazine. But in a lot of cases, you had, how are you figuring out those prices when you had such a short turnaround and such a limited supply? I could speak more to the earlier days when I was calling the shots. But the first thing was... We tended to not punt forever, but to punt a month. If, if something was really volatile, we thought it's, it's like the Hippocratic Oath. We first do no harm. If we would put something that we were not confident to be helpful to the market, then we might wait a month. But generally, dealers were just flying blind in some of those. They wanted something, not sketchy data, but incomplete data. So we do the best we could. Having said that, certainly in my regime, there was a desire if in doubt, it's just my nature. I, I wanted to be a little bit conservative. If you come out of the gate extremely liberal and, and very generous pricing for the first off the line kind of stuff, and if it doesn't hold on, you've really hurt that product. So to be not ultra conservative, but really seeing more than one sale to be able to substantiate a baseline value. If there's arrows the next month, everybody's happy, but, and for months to come, but that product was something that just, again, if you work off the, the SRP and do the analysis of how it could break, people could still make money at the original pricing. But I don't know that I was a big believer in $500 seemed like a lot for me in those days. I didn't buy any, but I didn't buy cards anyway. So yeah, being a, a little bit conservative and not any rush to judgment that would allow the market to find the level. And you're playing catch up on a lot of those products, admittedly. But the dealers that were savvy knew that's probably how it was going. And they would do that. My question for you, I think basketball has an advantage. I really enjoy your magazine. And one of the ways basketball has an advantage over the other sports is in the art of the cards. And you make a big deal about that. You always have a couple articles that are really talking about the aesthetics of the cards. You love the golden age of car design with the arenas uh, in the late 90s. But let me make my case. Basketball has an advantage over the other sports because basketball players have arguably more athleticism. It's more of a global game. They're uniforms show more of themselves. They're not bulky football uniforms or things like that. And they're playing above the rim. So they're up in the air. So there's so much more that the card designers can do, not just in those Metal Universe cards, but in any basketball card, you have more of a three-dimensional movement. It's not anchored to the ground. So do you take that argument? Does that express some of the ethos of why you are so enamored with basketball? Yeah, uh, I, think, I think basketball has an edge in that yeah. regard. Yeah, I think so. I agree with everything that you're saying. You, you also think about some of the best football players and their best moments. They're wearing helmets. You don't see their faces. And it's the same thing in baseball. You've got guys that you don't get to see exactly what's going on there. But where in basketball, in the biggest moments, you can not only see their faces, you can see their expressions. You can see the length of their body. You can see their reaction, their emotional reaction when something happens and when it doesn't. Whereas those moments are rarer in football and in baseball um, and in hockey as well. You, you mentioned the magazine and I, the, the article that you're talking about. Each month we have something called Wyatt's Art. It's written by somebody who has a master's degree in art and he writes it. His name's Kevin. 
Kevin, Black Griffin Cards on Instagram. He writes something for us almost every month. He's talking about why the basketball card itself is art. But even if you take all of the same design elements that he talks about and you put that same thing into a different sport, I think you're exactly right, Jim, that you have this element that is missing, which is naturally basketball players and what they're doing, I think are more apt to be artistic moments and to draw you in than these other sports. I think you're exactly right. I think football and hockey are at a disadvantage because of bulky uniforms and there's a lot of contact, but it's not the art of the football player. Gretzky was an artist on the ice. It's just not the nature of the sport. Okay. Tell me what your favorite basketball card product as a whole of all time is. I probably would say 61, 62 Fleer in the sense that I had a set. What did I trade that for? I think I traded my 61, 62 basketball set for 57 tops baseball set. <laughs> I, I clobbered the guy. He took these 66 cards and I got 407. And now I'm thinking, dude, can I do a do-over? Because <laughs> I had now, I will say this, my 61, 62 set, a lot of more cards I'd bought when I was a kid. So they were fresh out of the pack. Not uh, absolute mint because I had played with them. Not all of them, but some of them had bad centering. I do recall that. But I just thought, what am I doing with this 66-card set of basketballs? The only basketball cards that I had. But this is in the early 70s. And it's so easy. I'll just get another set. If I ever want it back, I'll get it. And I waited too long. So so 61 Fleer to me is on the pantheon of maybe the four or five greatest sets of all time. Not only do you have the Chamberlain rookie, but you have two of Russell's three original cards in the same set. You've got the Jerry West card. I actually own a West rookie that's perfectly centered and has this bright blue autograph. I don't know how you feel about autographs on original cards like that. But I love them. I love it. I love that card. That is one of the most iconic of all basketball cards. But then you get into guys like Elgin Baylor and Lenny Wilkins, and you've got, I think, eight or nine members of the NBA's greatest 50 with rookies in one set. But above all else, the color that you get, and I'm saying this as somebody who's colorblind, the colors that you get out of that set with those logos, it's just the best. It's one of the great sets of all time. I love that answer. And I want it back. I know the zip code of the person I traded with. I'm not going to mention it, but I know the zip code of the person. And it's a, he lives in a small town. <laughs> okay. Do you understand some of the dilemma that I had of being a really serious collector and a dealer prior to my publishing and authoring days and how difficult it is to wear those two hats? Now I'm looking at somebody that's actually doing a labor of love in terms of your monthly magazines you're really serious. You even write articles for it. You're editing, publishing. And yet in your core, you're also a dealer and a collector. And sometimes that there's a conflict there. To what extent have you struggled with that? Because I basically said, I'm, I'm not going to be a dealer. I'm barely, not, really not even be a collector while I was in the thick of it. Yeah. How much angst do you get about that? And does anybody talk to you about that? Not that I'm trying to be your counselor, but I probably needed counseling in those days because it, it was impossible to please everybody and to scratch everything. I think I do need a counselor on it because it's something that I've struggled with mightily. A couple of times we've interviewed somebody. We give an example. Carvin, the creator of Exquisite, I had him on and I asked him all the detailed questions that you'd ever want to ask about creating exquisite. And the day came where we wanted to design the magazine the right way. You'd think it's really easy to design a magazine to be able to just go out and get images here and there or whatever else. The reality is, especially when you're printing as we are now, to be able to get an image that's really top notch is actually not easy. And especially where we use an image of a card on the cover and then blow it up real big and make it the whole cover of the magazine. I, I... It's 
it's really hard, Jim. So I'm asking Carvin these questions and, and I ask him a question about what his favorite insert sets were in Exquisite. He says number pieces, 2003. We get talking about that. It just so happens that I own a number of pieces from 2003 of Dennis Rodman and we needed a card to put on the cover to represent Carvin. That was the whole idea. So even though it seems strange in 2021, we used this Dennis Rodman card as the cover of the magazine, which at that moment brings up a massive question, which is by putting a card that I own on the cover, what am I doing to the value of it? Yet the first answer is I have no idea. I don't know whether it changes the value. I'm, I'm not sure, but I am sure that we have a duty to be honest and as unbiased as we possibly can. And that's the goal to present people who are providing passionate takes on all different levels in the world of basketball cards. But I need to constantly be checking myself and we as a team, because there's a group of us, we need to be checking ourselves to make sure that we're not being unfair. I would point out that, that there are a lot of people at this point, whether they're pricing providers or other content creators that find find themselves in the same situation. And there's always a temptation to talk about your own cards in a way that can project the value of them higher. You've got to just be really honest with yourself and be able to answer to yourself at the end of the night. And you know what? You're still going to have some people along the way who are like, I know why you were saying what you were saying. That was wrong and you shouldn't have done that. You just have to be able to say, you know what? You're right. I just need to avoid the appearance of evil. But there's still situations like that Dennis Rodman card where it's just really easy to, to, to get the right image because you've got it on your own phone. Yeah. Yeah. I completely avoid it. And people still accuse me of it. You can't win because people, they think, what would I do? Many people think if I had that opportunity to take advantage of a situation, I would, because nothing you're doing or nothing I would have done, which I didn't do, but would have been illegal. And it's uh, maybe not even unethical. It, unethical would be if you don't disclose it. If you put the, your card out there and you say, and I heard that this is worth X number of dollars, <laughs> and then you use your position to manipulate people's mind on value. And that's where we don't provide a lot of pricing data on individual cards. We've started to do a little bit of it in an attempt to marry the analytical with the, the written piece, but we don't want to do too much of it because it feels just so easy to slip. And I admire you for all those years, you know, basically turning that aspect yourself off because in the end, maybe that is the only way to do it. There's more than one right way to do it, probably. My way was in the 20th century. <laughs> yeah, You're the, the real 27 guy in the 21st century. Thanks, Adam Gray. Thanks basketball collectors and any collectors I think could enjoy uh, the back and forth that Adam and I've had today about basketball cards. No disrespect to football, hockey, baseball, NASCAR, anything. It's collect what you love. Adam's about that. So am I. So we love basketball and, and don't care who else knows it. So thanks, Adam. Thanks, everybody. Be back again tomorrow.